pray with me and then I'll open up Isaiah chapter 11 for us. Lord Jesus, it is a good thing that you are enthroned. It is a good thing that there is a righteous one, a holy one. There is one whom all power and authority and dominion has been given to and he is not like us that he can be bought. He is not like us that he can be sinful. He is not like us that he can make mistakes. He is highly exalted. And we want to rest in the reality that you are a good king. And so I do pray that we would learn your ways, that we would learn your heart, that we would fear your words, that we would believe your promises, that we would wait for the end of our time when you will renew and restore all things. So would you keep us by your word, keep us near you. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. We are um, in our Advent series, and so today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 11, and I'll, I'll fill in the context of it because I do think the context of Isaiah is important. Uh, I think the ministry of Isaiah is just as important as the message, the message that we're going to talk about today. I think remembering who he preached to and what was going on during that time is going to be significant, I think, to the message. So this is the word of the Lord. And there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And this one shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and the adder is a venomous snake. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Amen. So um, I'm sure many of you know who, or you may not know who he is, but you may know the company he started. It's a man by the name of Henry T. Ford. And what you may not know is that Henry T. Ford uh, was a farmer. He grew up in a farming family and he was mesmerized by steam engines. Rumor has it that he saw a, a train and he 
followed it. Rumor has it that he was so captivated by this new mode of transportation, he was used to traveling with horse and buggy. It's the 1800s. And all of a sudden, there's the invention of a steam engine and a train, and it so captivated Henry T. Ford that he left the farm. He left the farm to go work for a company in, in Detroit, Michigan, and he wanted to be a machinist. And, and then he became a machinist, and he eventually became an engineer with the Edis, Thomas Edison Company. And in his spare time, he was so captivated by the steam engine that he started to build his own engine. And so in his backyard, he would take bicycle parts and he would take some of the technology that he had learned from work and he would try to build a car in his backyard. And so in 1896, he put out his first invention and it was a quadricycle. It was literally a four horsepower engine that would only allow a vehicle to go 20 miles an hour. And it was hodgepodge and it was four bicycle tires and he took, took it before investors and they shot it down. Well, you give him 12 more years and you get the Model T. And he completely revolutionized uh, manufacturing. He was the first guy to standardize all parts. It was not about the variety. You choose what color you want. You choose what model you want. The Model T was one model and that's all you got. And he was known for being fair with his laborers. He standardized everything because of his, this, this mystery, this wonder with transportation. And he was asked, allegedly, we don't know if, if he really said this, but he was asked along the way, what was the hardest part about inventing this? And here's what he allegedly said, that for everyone I asked, all they wanted was a faster horse. They had no idea that I want to give them something so much better. But he's talking about wonder, how wonder caught him up in this pursuit to give people something better than they thought. And, 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 and it's kind of an indictment, I think, upon human nature. To hear it again, this guy is wondering, is dreaming, and he wants to invent this new thing. And yet, if you ask us, no, just give us a faster horse and we're good. It's wonder. The case that I want to make to you this morning is that I think Isaiah is a prophet of wonder. I think there's a healthy part of our Christianity where we need to and should be caught up into just how unprecedented the gospel is, just how unheard of the reality that God will take on flesh, just how powerful and moving that is. And so what I want to do is, is talk a little bit about Isaiah and then talk about wonder. And then we're going to look at why I think the gospel or why this is a wonderful passage. So if you were with us last week, I'd encourage you to go listen to it, not because it's good. I mean, I'm not, you know, but because I do think it's, it's impossible to understand the manger without understanding the garden. It's, it's, ab it's absolutely impossible to understand Christmas without understanding what happened back there. And so what we did was we started back there. We started to look at why the earth is the way it is. We started to look at why there's sadness here. We even talked about the common grace that we feel around Christmas time. And we talked about how God was commonly good. He was commonly good to Adam and Eve. Their marriage lasted. They did not die right then. Adam lived over 900 years of age, right? 
Eve's womb was not closed completely. She had more children. The ground was cursed, but it, I would rather sow 10 seeds and get six than sow them and get none, right? So God was just commonly good to them, even in judgment. But the case that I made to you is that, that, that the, the hardship that we feel, the curse, the effects of the fall that we feel around this time of year, and the, the, the common grace, they're like treats that God is sort of leading us to something so much bigger. It, it's saving grace. It's the fact that God was not just about to give them healthy marriages and 900-year lives. God wanted to really, really, really undo everything that they had done, and he said it was going to happen through the birth of a son. Now, here's the thing. Genesis tells you that a son is coming, and the Genesis tells you why the son is coming. But here's the thing that Genesis does not do. He does not tell you about him. He does not tell you what he'll be like. He doesn't tell you who he'll be born to. He you, uh-oh, I think I'm going out. He doesn't tell you how he will save the world. But Isaiah does. And so in one way, what Isaiah is doing is Genesis says a pregnancy will save the earth, right? That's what Genesis says. This woman will have a son. Here's what Isaiah does. Isaiah says, here's a sonogram of the baby. Let me tell you what this baby is going to be like. Let me tell you about him. Let me let you see into his character, his nature, his person 700 years before he shows up. That's a real sonogram right there. 700 years in advance. That's what Isaiah is doing. He's opening up the veil and telling us about this baby who's coming. Now, can you think about it? It's in Isaiah that we hear that Jesus will be born from a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7. It's Isaiah that we hear that his name will be called Emmanuel, for God will be with you. It is in Isaiah that we hear that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9. It is in Isaiah that you hear that this son will grow up and he will give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. Isaiah 35. It is in Isaiah that we, feel, that we hear that when this son grows up, he's going to take the posture of a suffering servant. Isaiah would say, Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us in our own ways, and yet God has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. His chastisement will bring us peace. Isaiah is talking about substitutionary atonement, the way that Jesus will save the world. He will be made sinful. He will be made guilty, even though he was perfect. That is going to be a substitution that takes place. Your guilt, your iniquity, your shame will be put upon him and him taking that away. It will give you peace. Isaiah says that 700 years before Jesus shows up. Now, here is what's beautiful about this. If you know what's happening in Israel when Isaiah is giving these prophecies, it will absolutely blow your mind. It is not when Israel is a strong and mighty nation. It is not when they are obeying. It is not when things are safe and secure. He, Isaiah gives you all of these promises when they're at the bottom. As a matter of fact, he prophesied from 7, uh, 740 through 690. Now, that may not strike a, a, curve, a, a, a nerve with you, but here's the thing. 740 to 690 B.C., there was a lot of stuff that happened between them. First of all, in 722, right? So 18 years after he is prophesying and ministering, 18 years later, the 10 northern tribes, they get crushed by the Assyrians. 
He experienced that. And that same leader, Sennacherib, after he took away the 10 tribes and took over the capital in Samaria, he came south. He didn't want just the 10. He wanted the bottom two. And he came down south to, to take them over. And it was Hezekiah, the king down there, who got a messenger to him. And it was from Sennacherib saying, give up, throw in the towel. You're toast too, just like the rest of the nations. And Hezekiah goes into the temple and he meets with Isaiah and they call upon the name of the Lord. And that very night when Sennacherib came to plunder the two southern tribes, it says the angel of the Lord went and struck his entire army. 185,000 of his troops were killed that night. And he went back to Nineveh, the capital, and then he was killed by his sons. Go read Isaiah 35 through 39, kind of in that section. It's going to lay it all out. Now, you would think that Hezekiah, like Hezekiah is a semi-good king of the south. After that whole ordeal, that he's going to get it right. Well, he doesn't. A representative from Babylon comes and pays him a visit because they found out he's ill and he's healed. The Lord heals him. And what he does is he, he shows him all of their treasures in Israel. He gives him a key to the city and basically says, come and look at what we have. And Isaiah says, you fool, what did you just do? Why did you show the king of Babylon what we have? I know what's happening to you. You're going to be taken away by the same people that you just showed your treasures to. You see what's happening? Isaiah is ministering within this context where it's not good for God's people, where things are really bad. Now, why in the world? This is the part that baffles me, that it's when they're at their lowest. It's when their security is the most threatened. It's when their sin is the most rampant. It's when other nations seem more powerful that it is in that context up and against this backdrop that you get a book that it's hard to read five or six chapters in Isaiah and Isaiah does not talk something about Jesus. So in other words, why? Why do all of these prophecies about Jesus at its height and at its pinnacle come when God's people are at their lowest? On the one hand, it's for reassurance. It's to, it's, it's to tell them you are going to be driven away and yet the Lord will bring you back. That, that yes, you, your, your, your existence right now, now is fragile, but God's promises are still strong. And so it would have come to them for reassurance, but it would have come to them to create wonder. It is Isaiah who says, no eyes have seen and no ears have heard and no heart of man has imagined what the Lord God Almighty has in store for his people. Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians, but he gets that from Isaiah 64. He's a prophet of wonder. Up and against their sickness and sadness and fragility, you get these beautiful truths. Now, last week I wanted us to look at this subject of longing and waiting. Today I want us to just think a little bit about wonder. There's a Scottish philosopher by the name of Adam Smith, and he writes this about wonder. Wonder arises when something quite new is presented and our memories cannot from all of its stores 
cast upon any image that nearly resembles this strange appearance. And so you hear what he's saying. He is saying that we are struck with wonder when, one, we see something, right? And in our minds, we see it, we perceive it. And then what happens in our subconscious is we search that. We, search, we go back here, and because we cannot find anything like this thing in front of us, it evokes us to wonder. It's the reason why children are often caught up in wonder more than adults. It's the reason why you have a toddler or a one-year-old who goes to your light switch and just flicks the light switch on and off and on and off, and they will be entertained for an hour if you don't stop them. Why? Because they have never seen that cause and effect relationship. They have never seen that I can use my hand to turn this switch and this switch turns on all the lights. Let me do that again and again and again. It's wonder. It's the reason why you can be riding as adults with kids in your back car and you and I, we've seen the moon a million times. And there's a full moon and it's full and it's bright and we're driving and we don't even see it. And it's our kids saying, Dad, look how big the moon is. Look how big the moon is. It's wonder, right? It's wonder. We've seen that. We've seen it a hundred thousand times. We're not moved by it. We have a place in the back of our minds that we can register that picture. And so we're not moved to wonder. But for a kid who's not seen the moon that close and the moon that bright or what you can do when you turn on a light switch, it's wonderful. Here's the thing. The incarnation is wonderful. It is an event uh, in and of itself that if you search your mind, there is nothing there like it. Nothing there like it. There is nothing in your mind that registers with this reality that God Almighty will become man. You cannot search your mental history and find anything back there. And therefore, the incarnation is and of itself. It's a wonderful, glorious truth. And here's the thing. We don't always feel like that. Christmas comes, Christmas goes, and we're not moved, right? But if the incarnation really is wonderful, and it really is, there is not one single event like it before it, and there will not be one single event after it. There is nothing in our minds that can register that and, and, and can, can appropriate that. Then, then, it's wonderful. And the onus is not on Jesus, right, to convince us that this is wonderful. It is wonderful. The onus on us to dig into why. Why is this miraculous? Why is this special? Why is this beautiful? I want us to wonder. So, the case that I'm making the incarnation is wonderful. And if it's wonderful, then there had better be some unprecedented truths about Jesus. And that's what Isaiah gives them. In Jesus, you have an unprecedented king with unprecedented power who was creating an unprecedented world that we've not tasted before. The first thing you see is that this is truly an unprecedented king. Now, the way I want to do this is, is because I do think that by the time that, that God's people heard these promises, 
they were ripened to know that God would come and do something. What I'm saying is that God, that they're wanting horses. God has given them cars, like airplanes. Like he is so far and above what they thought he was going to do that that's, I think that, that frames the entire passage. And so here's what I'm gonna do. I wanna look at what they thought, but then I'm gonna show you what God did and how what he did so surpassed what they thought. And that should cause wonder. Y'all with me there? So the first thing is this, this whole idea of a king. All right, Isaiah tells us, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. All right, now right there, when you see Jesse's name, underline it. And if you want to draw a little note, put David. Jesse is David's father. And so when any Jew would have heard this, this would have been kingship language. This would have been, they would have been thinking the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he is told you will always have a son on the throne, O David. So anytime you see sort of David or Jesse, that it, it should take our minds there. And so in their minds, they knew, they knew, they had heard that God Almighty is going to raise up a king who will come up out of the loins of Jesse and David, right? So that, that's good. But notice what he says. He shall come forth from a stump. So here it's the image of a tree, a big tree that's been productive and fertile and is, is alive and all of a sudden, it's being cut down. And when you look at it and you see this stump, it looks like the better days are behind it. It looks dead. It looks like it's gone, but it's not. That there will be a bud. A bud will grow. And that's what's happening in Israel. You're going to be cut down and you're going to be deported. But I promise you, when it looks like there is no life there, I promise you, then something will happen that's beautiful. They would have known, they would have known that they would have had a fellow Jew on the throne. Deuteronomy 17 says, when you get in the land and when you want a king for yourselves, like the other nations, you must not set a foreigner over you. Rather, you must choose someone from your own midst. And so this whole idea of having a king who was a Jew, who was of the lineage of David, that, that, they get that, they get that day and night. Here's what they don't get. They don't get that they would need help from a foreigner. And when I say a foreigner, I don't mean a Ninevite. And I don't mean a Philistine. I mean like a foreigner from another cosmos, from another place. They need a foreigner who is coming from somewhere else to intervene. And you see, when you read Isaiah chapter one, they're caught up in this vicious cycle where the Lord says, see, look, look, these are my own children. I have raised them and there is no fear. There is no knowledge. There is no wisdom. There is, they are evil from the soles of their feet to the top of their heads. That is in, first, that is in Isaiah chapter one. And then there's this beautiful proposition. If you turn, if you turn to me and repent, your sins, though they are scarlet, they will be made white as snow. These are promises. If you turn, if you turn, here's the thing. They could not do it. God put the proposition out there and they still could not turn. And so what does God do in the place of their inability? He says, you know what? I have to do this for them. And so that's what you see in this entire text. Notice right there, it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Look at 11 verse 2. Look at the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. You know what's happening? For them to be rescued, they need a king who's better than David. David was strong in battle. He delighted in the Lord. 
but a beautiful woman could tempt him. They needed a king better than Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man to walk the earth, but Solomon was a fool when it came to women. They needed a stronger Israelite. They needed someone stronger who was not just a man. And so notice what it says. The spirit of the Lord will be upon him. The spirit of the Lord will empower him. The spirit of the Lord will protect him. The spirit of the Lord will keep him. The spirit of the Lord will move him towards obedience. The spirit of the Lord will, will consume this person. Now, it makes perfect sense that when Jesus Christ is born, the mystery of the incarnation is this. That in the beginning of time, God made man in his image. The incarnation says that God took on the image of man. Now, here's the thing. How in the world do you do that without the Holy Spirit protecting Jesus from original sin and protecting Jesus from the passing along of, of sinful nature? It is the Holy Spirit who impregnated Mary, who put Jesus right there. It is the Holy Spirit who guarded him to make sure that our Savior was sinless and perfect from, from, from all through life. And it makes perfect sense that when Jesus becomes an adult and starts his earthly ministry, it is the Holy Spirit who leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. The same serpent who tested Adam in the, in, in the garden is coming after Jesus in the wilderness. And it wasn't a garden. It was barren. It was dry. He was hungry. And it was the Holy Spirit who sustained him. And it was the Holy Spirit when he came out of the temptation. I'll read it. It was the Holy Spirit when Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. And when Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, he stands up and he reads and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He has sent me to recover sight to the blind, to set liberty for those who are oppressed and to proclaim a year of the Lord's favor. Now, notice what Jesus just says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And you know what Jesus read from? Right from Isaiah 61. So in Isaiah's mind, this one who is coming to be a king, he is unlike anything you've ever imagined. He is going to be fully man and he is going to be a Jew and he is going to come out of the lineage of David. Yes. But you know what? He's God. He is God. Only God can give God what God deserves. Only God can consume God's wrath. Only God can satisfy God's justice. And what we have in the gospel, in the coming of Jesus, is God Almighty joining himself with humanity that Jesus might be a faithful and suitable mediator for his people that right now there's flesh and blood on the throne room of God that right now wherever Jesus is and he does have a zip code he is somewhere who's on the throne is someone like us and that's important because we have a savior who can identify with us in our weakness we have a savior who is tempted in every way like us and yet without sin. We have a savior who, who knows our frame and remembers that we are dust, but we have more than a savior. 
who sympathizes with us. We have a savior who's actually saved us. This is unprecedented. This is uncharted territory. This has not been thought up by men that God would rescue men and women by taking on humanity. And this king, this new unprecedented king has unprecedented power. And you see it like you would expect. So here's what I'm doing here. I think David and Solomon are, are watermark kings in the Old Testament. Uh, and so you see it here with wisdom and you see it with might. But I think they would have expected that our king would be wise like, like, like Solomon. And you see it here that, that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Those same two words are ascribed to Solomon. And so I do think this has overtones there. I, in their minds, I think that they would have thought that the new king who's coming to rescue us, he's going to be somewhat like Solomon. Now, Solomon was a wise cat. I mean, there's one, I'm gonna give you one episode of his wisdom. You remember the story in 1 Kings when the, the, the two ladies are both pregnant and they both have a child, they're two prostitutes, and one lady rolls over on her child and she kills it. The other lady over here, their children are apparently the same age and they kind of look alike. And so what this lady does, whose child is dead, she takes the baby and switches cribs. So she takes this child and gives it to this lady while this lady is asleep. And then she takes this lady's baby who's alive and puts it over here so that when this lady wakes up, her child is dead. And so this woman goes to Solomon. She says, wait a minute, wait a minute. She's tricking us. She's tricking me. My baby was alive. She rolled over and killed her, killed her baby. You know what Solomon says do? Bring me a sword. You can't settle it. We're going to cut the baby in half. You take one half and you take the other half. And at that point, this lady over here, who it really wasn't her child, she says, yeah, cut him. If I can have him, you can't either. And this lady who was a real mother, she says, stop, stop. I would rather my child be alive with her than to be harmed. And when Solomon saw their response, when he saw how those two mothers responded, then he made his judgment. He based his judgment and his wisdom off of what he saw. They would have been thinking that we are going to have a king who is that wise. So hold that thought. They would have been thinking that we are going to have a king who is strong in battle like David. Was it not David who fought on behalf of Israel when they were fighting the Philistines? Was it not David who says, I have killed a bear. I have killed lions with my own hands and I will kill this Philistine, right? This is David. David was a, he was a beast. So don't think like weak and puny, think savage. <laughs> think like I don't want to fight him in war, right? Think that, 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 that is the David. You would think that they would get a king who is skilled in weaponry. You would think they would get a king who is skilled with his hands, but notice, Notice what is notice this king in terms of wisdom. Look at what it says in 11 verse three. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. You see, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and righteousness shall be his belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. What they're doing is saying you're getting someone better than Solomon. You, he, this new king, you don't even have to bring your case to him. It's already decided before you come to him. He can see into your heart. And he judges righteously and faithfully. He, he cannot be bought. 
You cannot pull a slick one on him. You cannot use your culture or your money or your power or your influence or your social network. None of that works in front of this king. He is totally otherworldly. And he looks out for the weak and he looks out for the meek and he looks out for the poor. That is unprecedented. You mean to tell me that this person can be wise enough to settle disputes and not need to hear evidence? That's what Isaiah is saying. He doesn't need human eyes to see the truth. He doesn't need human ears to hear the truth. He is the embodiment of righteousness. And that's good news to us because we live in a world where injustice pervades. We live in a world where if you make enough money or have enough connections or if you're of this culture or if you have enough influence that we have all of these ways that we can finagle ourselves out of justice. And what Isaiah is saying, there is coming a king. You can't finagle out of anything. He sees right through you and your connections don't matter. They don't work in his courtroom. He will judge with equity and he will judge with fairness. But the other thing you see in this text is that his power. So, so David is this mighty warrior. But look at what it says about this new king. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. You see what's happening there? He doesn't need tanks. He doesn't need guns. He doesn't need spears. He doesn't need to be trained in mortal combat. His mouth, his very words will be powerful. He has the power in his very words to destroy. He just speaks it and it's done. That's this king that Isaiah is talking about. Nas has a song and he says, your arms are too short to box with God, which is actually from a poem by James Weldon Johnson on the prodigal. But think about the image. Your arms are too short to box with God. You can't even get in for a body shot without him saying down. That's what Isaiah is saying. This is an unprecedented king with unprecedented wisdom, with unprecedented strength. And this is a manifestation of his unprecedented power. Never before have we seen what God is about to do. The last thing about this king is that he will create an unprecedented world. They would have anticipated a king who would restore and unite their kingdom. As a matter of fact, when you read the context, go down to chapter 11, go down to verse 13. It says, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off and Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So right there, what's happening, Judah and Ephraim were in two different, so, so Judah is the south and Ephraim is with the northern 10 tribes. And so there's beef between the tribes, there's strife between the tribes. And so in their, in their minds, they're longing for one who will unite them. Make us one nation again. Here's the thing. This king that Isaiah is talking about, he not just squashing beef between tribes. He's killing it all. And not just amongst people, even the entire creation. 
And so when Paul writes in Romans that all of creation, it groans and it waits for the revealing of the sons of God because it was subjected into futility by Adam. In other words, Adam's offense did not just affect Adam. It affected the entire world. And what Paul says is that one day when everything is reversed, guess what's also going to be restored? Not just us but creation. It's going to be a really new world order, a world we've not seen, a world that we've not dreamed about. And Isaiah gives you a picture of it. He says the wolf will lie down with the lamb. That cannot happen right now. You are taking a predator and a prey and saying lie down together. It does not work. The predatorial instincts will take over and the prey instincts will take over. He will pursue and he will run. Look at what else he says. And the leopard will lie down with a young goat. That does not happen. That is the most vulnerable goat. A young one and a big leopard will eat him nine times out of nine times. <laughs> and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf. So you have the calf, the most vulnerable. You have like the fattened calf, the most desirable. And they're both going to lie down with a lion. And then a little kid will lead them. And the cow will sit next to a bear and they'll graze. So somehow this bear's anatomy is going to be changed where he might not be a meat eater, but a grass eater. That there's no such thing as death and gore and blood and dying. Then look at it. And the lion will eat straw like the ox and the nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. Like, wait a minute, what? I'm scared of my kids getting into ant beds, right? We're talking about a snake's den where kids can play and they will not be bitten. Here's a video, right? I'm sure some of you have seen it. It went viral. And it's about this guy who's going hunting with his dogs. And he's going hunting and he's in Australia. And all of a sudden he's hunting wild boar. And you can tell his dogs are suited up. I mean, they have like the, 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 the armor on. And they run into a kangaroo, and the kangaroo kind of puts the dog in the headlock. And he, ha I mean, he literally has the dog in a headlock. And, and you can see him, like, you can see his muscles flex, like, he is, like, choking him out. And so you see this other dog over here, and then you see, like, the, the owner, he comes, like, running in there. And, when, and the kangaroo is still holding him. Then he gets up to him, and the kangaroo lets the dog go, and he just does this. Like, you can see his traps, you can see, like, his veins. <laughs> And, and then he squares up. He literally squares up, and it looks like he's about to shift his weight on his tail and, and, and destroy this man with a kick. And then the man squares up, and he jabs him. Like, he hits, <laughs> he hits him in his face. And, and the, his head kind of goes back. And then the kangaroo squares up again, and it looks like, it really looks like he's about to get you, dude. And then the other dog comes in the picture, and finally the kangaroo squares him up, and he just hops along. That's a perfect image of our world right now. <laughs> right? You have the dogs hunting the boar because the boar, they're eating the crops and they've been sent and trained by the trainer to go and get the boar and they run into a kangaroo who feels threatened and so he puts the dog in the headlock and he's gonna choke him out and he's not even the one they're after. And then the owner comes up and the, the kangaroo squares up with him and he has to steal on him to, to get him, to, I mean, to back down. I mean, that, that is our world. We live in that type of world where that type of fear and that type of let me preserve my life and that type of then animal will kill you, dude. 
But there is coming a day when we will swim with sharks and play with lions because the knowledge of the Lord will be across the face of the earth where all things will be made new. And you know what? This is better than Eden. And that, that sounds heretical. This is actually better than the garden. And let me tell you why. For some mysterious reason, when Adam and Eve were made very good, they were also, also embedded with some type of ability to choose evil. And they chose evil. Somehow, in some mysterious way, this serpent could be embodied by Satan himself. And what Jesus is saying is there's coming a day. You won't be able to choose evil. It will be erased from your memory and your ability. There's coming a day when the animalistic instincts that we see and know right now, they're gonna be taken away. The lion will lay down next to a lamb. The kids will play with snakes. There is no death and nothing that can cause death in the world that this king is creating. So, I want to drop that on you and just say wonder. That's all I want you to do. Think about this unprecedented king who has this unprecedented power, who's creating this unprecedented world, and you give him the time to think, you worship him, you submit to him, you love him, and you wait for him. That's the homework today. Just wonder, wonder, be in awe of this Messiah that Isaiah is talking about. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to get caught up in what I need to go and do. And I think a healthy part of our faith is Sometimes doing nothing but pondering and searching the mysteries of the Lord and allowing those mysteries to lead us into worship, lead us into waiting, lead us into longing for true justice, leading us to long for the new heavens and the new earth. The fact of the matter is when we long for a good king and we long for power and we long for a better world, what we're really longing for is Jesus. And so I pray that you would place our longings right there. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.